Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram speaking. On this episode, we chatted with Charles Fan, Chief Technology Officer from Interdex. Interdex is a next-generation digital assets exchange with strong engineering roots in high-frequency trading firms, traditional exchanges, hedge funds, investment banks, market data, and liquidity providers. This episode was a lot of fun. We talked about Charles' background in traditional finance and his prior life as a derivatives trader. We then compare and contrast traditional and crypto derivatives markets. We also talk technical details of perpetual swaps and how they differ from other derivatives products. Finally, we discuss the engineering underpinnings of the Internex platform and the UX and UI considerations they had when building the product. We finish up discussing technologies Charles is excited about. Hope you enjoyed this one. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. Thanks. Hey, everyone. You've got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Faison, also known as The Wizard. Our guest today is Charles Fan, Chief Technology Officer at Interdex. Thanks for joining today, Charles. Thank you for having me. Can we get a little about your background and kind of what excited you about this blockchain and crypto space that got you involved? Yeah, so uh, I've been a quantitative trader for a long time. Uh, I've been part of several startups in the hedge fund and HFT space. Mostly from day one, I've uh, been partnering a couple of them. So because of that, I spent a lot of time building trading software, so both strategy and execution software, and running software development teams to do that. So um, you know, over the years, uh, my vantage point in, in mainstream finance, I've followed crypto since uh, 2013, watching the space develop. So uh, you know, opportunity arose, and you know, it was a perfect match of relevant skills and uh, entrepreneurial vigor and optimism. Yeah. And as far as the traditional derivatives market, so I'm mostly familiar with the American calls and puts, just standard options on single stock equities. But the kind of trading of other derivatives, more complex stuff is not super familiar to me. What kinds of derivatives were you trading when you were trading? I mean, derivatives, you're basically talking about trading volatility in one way or another, and maybe correlations as well. So over the years, I've been, been quite fortunate to uh, be able to trade derivatives in different ways. It's always about volatility or correlation in some way. So we had different models over the years of you know volatility trading. Also traded index arb at one point. You know you're always trading vol. Most often some kind of index product. So and I guess the technical term would be their European options, even if they're on American products. Mm-hmm. Also, we got into uh, VIX trading at one point. Uh, which is really just a, a way to bundle together a bunch of options. There's a lot of a lot of interesting things in option trading that you can get into with the different strategies. And you know, people will phone you up and ask you for different strategies. You know, risk reversals, butterflies, all those kind of things. Yep. But they all boil down to what are you doing with volatility, and what does your time structure look like? That sort of thing. It's actually quite fascinating. Uh, Taleb, before he wrote his more popular books, wrote a book called Dynamic Hedging, which also talks about a lot of these interesting things. Oh, that's a heavily mathematical tome on the topic, right? Dynamic Hedging? Um, yep. it's, it's definitely more mathematical than his sort of popular writings. 
but it's also worth reading because it's got a lot of anecdotes as well. He's quite quite a good writer and pretty good anecdotes in there about his time and trading options of various sorts. Yep. Your point about trading derivatives and is basically like trading vol is really interesting. And it's also one interesting thing that I found about crypto early on was just the uh, the massive amount of volatility that most cryptos have. They go through these periods where, you know, nothing's really going on. But back in the early days, sorry, what I mean to say that right now, they seem to be going through a period where um, it doesn't have the same type of volatility that you saw in the early days, at least, you know, <laughs> over the last couple of weeks, which uh, feels like an eternity in crypto. But you see a lot of these cryptos would move during these periods where there was a rush of capital into the market, they would move like 30, 40, 50%, some like multiples in a, in a single day. So I always thought that I never looked into it, I never modeled it, but it just uh, seemed like they had a similar kind of profile to how some derivatives move or even like the VIX index. Well, sure. Um, I mean, I think if you were to trade uh, say options on crypto, you would also start with say something like a Garch model, right? So um, it's your first guess, at least, would be that the behavior is similar. So you know your Garch model is is going to be where you start. Of course, there's you know big differences. There were entire years in my early career where we're just sitting there and nothing would happen, and people would complain, yelling down the phone. They go, "Oh, the market's died." That happens <laughs> in crypto over shorter periods of time, but then when it goes up, it really, really goes up by a lot, right? Yep. I mean, I've seen options in crypto that have been like over 100 vol, right? Wow. You know, there's, there's definitely things going on there. And people who are interested in trading it will probably be looking at it. Yep. There's definitely a lot of people from traditional finance who are looking at it. And, you know, we know that because we know that, say, some of the HFTs are into it. With them, there'll be all the, the same sort of interest from other, other guys who are you know, in adjacent spaces and have you know, adjacent skills. Yeah. What do you think has kind of uh, caused this influx? Obviously, you know, the returns open up everyone's eyes to what the space is capable of. But from like a career view type of move, I remember in like 2013 and 14, you didn't really talk about Bitcoin with like publicly, like there may be a couple guys at your fund that had heard about it and would be open to talking about it. And there were definitely a couple guys who wanted to have nothing to do with it. So what do you think's kind of helped change that attitude to uh, what you're saying, seeing now in terms of the influx of kind of mainstream investment? Well, I'd say perhaps it's a kind of snowball effect. Right? Once you see one or two big names declare that they're interested in crypto or they're talking about crypto, then it becomes acceptable to you for you to talk about crypto right, within your firm. Yep. You know, you could imagine that some other asset starts um, becoming interesting, right? Like, say, I've got a bunch of Pokemon cards here for my kid on my desk. Okay. <laughs> and people started to trade those. If that became a thing, then even if you're sitting in some hedge fund that's making lots of money and, you know, is very respectable, you're, you're going to say, hmm, maybe I'll wait a bit before I present this as uh, our new trading asset, right? Yep. But then as soon as a bunch of other guys go and do it, well, first of all, it shows you that there's a market. And, and it becomes respectable and it becomes a thing that you can do. And I guess that kind of brings us to, so what are some uh, differences that you see right now, either in their profile or how they're traded, maybe? I'm not sure exactly. Uh, but some of those differences in derivative markets in traditional finance versus crypto. So I guess one of the big things would be this uh, perpetual swap. Okay. Which is, um, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it, an instrument that uh, tries to match the price of 
an index so that when you're trading it, it's always just whatever the index price is. And if it's away from the index price, they use interest rates to nudge it towards the correct price, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And if you were a derivative trader a few years earlier, you would have all the math necessary to understand this. But you would have grown up in a world where you just traded futures. And every three months, there'd be an expiry. There'd be an interest rate that meant there was a, a difference, which is called the basis between the spot and the future. And over time, the basis would come down. And then on the expiry day, the spot and the future would be the same. And that would just repeat itself every three months. Of course, there's issues with that, which is, for instance, if an expiry happens, you need to roll that position. So it's convenient to have an instrument that you don't need to roll. And there's a yeah, there's a number of interesting things around having that perpetual, which will make it simpler to use, especially for retail, than you know having a bunch of futures that they need to roll, that kind of thing. Yep. That's super interesting because I remember this being an issue for a few others that traded on our team. Just, uh, I mean, it was just something you dealt with. You had options or certain derivatives expiring at the end of the week had the whole like triple, quadruple witching thing where market makers could kind of influence the price of particular assets. With the perpetual swap, is this something, like I haven't heard about it before until crypto. Is this something that is like a UX tweak? Is it something that benefits retail or is there some other reason why this is, uh, this is more popular? Benefits retail, uh, it's a financial innovation. The other thing that you might remember from the derivatives trading days uh, would be interest rate hedging. So you'd have to sit and you'd have to trade uh, short-term interest rate contracts, which are uh, the funny ones that have a, well, at that time had a price, you know, close to 100. And they would, you know, go move up and down like a bond, but the actual interest rate would be the difference between 100 and, and the price. And to explain that to retail is, you know, probably a little bit uh, onerous, right? Right. They really just want a line that follows the index. And if you buy it on one day and you sell it another day, it, you know, the money that you make is a difference. So deep inside those tomes about derivatives, there will be a way to create this line. And that is the way. It's quite interesting. Yeah. What's also interesting, like how does the price get... So I know Interdex is offering a perpetual swap. And before we get into the platform, which is something I definitely uh, want to talk about too, we'd love to understand just how this works a little more. How is the price set? Like uh, say we're looking at a Bitcoin uh, perpetual swap. How do you determine how it should be priced? Okay. So this is like where the interface of finance and, and engineering happens, right? So I mean, there's, there's both the engineering concern that the different prices that you're using to stick into your index are present and, you know, they haven't crashed or haven't stopped feeding prices. And then there's the financial concern of showing a price that is representative of the index, the asset that you're trying to value. So um, you take a piece out of uh, statistics and you say, maybe we need some kind of median-based way of doing that, right? So uh, for instance, uh, one way of doing it would be you take all the fees that you can get. So say you have some index and you're taking the, the spot price from, say, seven or eight other exchanges. It's possible that one or two of them will be offline at some point. But say you were to drop the highest and the lowest and then take the medium, median of what's left. That would give you something that's a bit more robust mm -hmm. than, say, just taking an average or taking anything that's dependent on having a specific number of, of entries in it. 
And are there times where, I don't know, a couple exchanges that you're looking at their prices? I mean, this was a bigger issue back in the day, maybe less so now, where two prices or a handful of prices diverge quite a bit. Like, how would you deal with that? Well, I built a, an arbitrage engine between Bitstamp and MT Gox way back in the day. Mm-hmm. And um, I never turned it on because, you know, it just looked weird. Okay. <laughs> um, if you're... If you're used to calculating ARBs uh, from the financial market, you don't really expect that ARB to persist for very long. So um, if it does persist, you're going to think, hmm, maybe I shouldn't you know, put my entire life savings into this gap. Yep. Because it might disappear. Right. So um, if you find that the ARB persists for a while, I mean, you kind of need to be looking for some kind of explanation for it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, for some reason there's higher demand on one exchange or something like that. I think one thing that you often find, and it's also similar to the Gox story, is uh, if there's some kind of issue with drawing, then, um, you know, withdrawing fiat, then, um, like, say, uh, they have some processing time issue, then that's going to mean that anyone trying to do the ARB is, is not going to be able to do it fast enough. They're not going to be able to actually run that ARB. And, you know, it's, it's a sort of circulation, right? And the ARB that is going to eventually push the prices together. Yep. And one more question on the perpetual swap mechanics. So how does a swap relate to physical Bitcoin? So say a customer buys 100 BTC worth of perpetual swap. Is there 100 BTC worth of underlying Bitcoin that's trading hands as well? Or how does that work? Uh, no. Okay. Not on the exchange. However, remember it's the perpetual inverse swap. Okay. Uh, another wrinkle on top of a fascinating instrument. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what you make is going to be in, in bitcoins, right? And mm-hmm. um, so it's not going to be in dollars. Normally what the exchanges do is they rely on people who are trading on it to keep the market in line with the index. So what would happen is with someone who would have access to both the spot and the index, they would see that you know from time to time there'd be some ARB opening up, and then they would trade it to uh, push it back together. And that's how it. There's a lot of uh, technical stuff that you can read about this. Yeah, it's quite interesting, uh, and because it's sort of modern crypto space, and people are happy to talk about stuff. All this stuff is available in sort of modern uh, blog form. Uh, very few number of medium posts about the perpetual inverse swap. I think. And you, off the top of your head, if you don't know the answer, that's totally fine. But is there a paper or a post or a, a person that writes about it that's worth you know following and looking at? Yes, yes, there is a post specifically about this. I cannot remember any of the details of it. Okay, we'll follow up on the offline and then we'll get that out in the show notes as too. So yeah, we'd love to learn more about Interdax. So I understand that it's a trading platform. Uh, would love to learn more about it, kind of what it is and what you guys are going for, you know, how it differs from other training platforms like BitMEX and, and others. So we're building the next generation of derivative exchange. We've got a team that is capable. We come from finance. So people who've built these uh, financial exchanges that are, are very fast, very reliable. At the same time, we have the, the financial experience to deal with the actual product. Like we just talked about and how that inverse perpetual swap works. So the other thing about crypto is it's, it's highly social. You'll find that there's lots of people on Twitter talking about which way they think Bitcoin's going to go or Ethereum or whatever coin it is. And 
they'll be happy to call each other out and say, Hey, listen, uh, I think it's going up and you think it's going down. You know, why don't we uh, settle it? And there's sort of the social element is very different with crypto. So we've got a big social element to ours as well, which is people will be able to battle it out with each other. So you would be able to go online and there will be a bunch of people and they will all have uh, some kind of stake that they put up and we'll, you know, after the end of some period, see uh, who's turned their uh, money into uh, the highest uh, profits. And at the same time, we have tools for people to discuss what they're doing and talk about uh, trading in, in a way that's social that back in the financial world is probably um, a lot less common. Gotcha. And is that like through a chat, like a built-in chat platform of some kind or a forum or how, how does that look? Yeah, yeah. So you might be familiar with uh, Discord, which is uh, most commonly used as a chat platform for people who are playing games. and they have an API, so we're able to show our, our channel inside of our, our app. So what instruments are going to be offered currently through Interdex? So, for instance, the Bitcoin perpetual swaps, a similar thing in Ethereum, a similar thing in Litecoin. Kind of depends a bit on what the market says it wants. It's not really a problem for us to add one coin or another. But of course, we expect Bitcoin to be uh, the most popular one. Yeah, I, you know, it's the biggest market cap, most liquid and so on. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, we're also working on allowing people to make uh, bets on indices based on um, old school stuff. So like exchange rates or particular stocks or indices and that kind of thing. So uh, eventually we'll be able to battle this out with people over, say, a, a month or however long the trading battle lasts. And whoever's best at it will be able to brag about it. Yeah, that's so interesting because that I always thought that was one thing that was lacking in the traditional market, even before crypto. Easy ways for retail to place bets on things like exchange rates and stuff like that. I guess you had, uh, I don't know if you ever, did you ever play around with Intrade? It was the... Uh, I think I heard about it. It was a prediction market where people would post, uh, it wasn't people, it was a centralized company. And I think they're the ones who posted all the bets, but they would post bets like who would win, you know, the 2012 election, 2016 election, you know, things like that. So that's interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. Bets on real world stuff, right? Like uh, actual events. Yeah. Yeah. Actual events. But also interest rates too. They're, back in 2008, when everything was going crazy, I remember there were bets on in trade in terms of like, is Bear Stearns going to go bust? But also, what is the interest rate going to be in like six months? Like, what is the US 10-year uh, going to look like? So um, if you wanted to make a market about sort of some specific thing like that, I mean, it, it's not really a problem for um, the risk engine. So it's really just a, a question of uh, whether the product is about that. I mean, to start with, it's going to be more like, you know, do you think you're a dollar? You know, do you want to buy some euro dollar? That kind of thing. Yep. Rather than um, specific events. But, you know, in theory, it's it's not actually that hard for us to build that out to that if, if we wanted to. Yep. So CTO, Chief Technology Officer, of course, means different things at different companies, particularly on, you know, what stage the company is in and the makeup of the rest of the team. I think you guys are mostly an engineering team, right? I think. You know, if I saw the last post, it was like two thirds out of your team was, were engineers. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Almost entirely engineers. So can you talk a little about your role and kind of how you see your CTO role as, especially at a, such a you know, large engineering team? Sure. So um, I suppose as CTO, you need to be able to do something that one part of the team does. 
and while you're maybe not necessarily as experienced in everything else. For me, it was writing core matching engine and all this sort of C++ bits that uh, need to be quite fast. And then from there, being a part of the management team and uh, overseeing you know, what the other teams were doing to connect into the core and how uh, the information from the core is distributed, how core talks to risk, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And as also generally, um, as someone who's done a few startups before, being part of the management team on that side and, and advising on that. Yep. And is the platform going to be uh, web or desktop based? Well, all our data is distributed through a web infrastructure. Okay. Eventually, there will be a desktop app, and there will be mobile apps. But we'll, you know, to start with, uh, you open a browser and you access it. Okay, great. And uh, traditional trading systems, like performance and latency in terms of how quickly you get the data, are critical. But with uh, a lot of cryptocurrencies, since the system is distributed and you're just operating a node that receives the latest block or transaction information at not necessarily the exact same amount of time, where can you gain an advantage by having performance and where does that not exist in uh, crypto markets where it did in traditional markets? Okay, so um, it's probably important to think of a distinction between uh, the exchange's speed and the speed of the underlying crypto blockchains. Right. Right. So um, the way it works is your blockchain um, might be one of those that, you know, every 10 minutes on average writes a block, or it might be, you know, on a shorter time scale or longer time scale. It doesn't really matter. You need to deposit your crypto eventually using a blockchain. But once it's in there, you know, we are the exchange effectively is just doing accounting on it, right? So you are exchanging the coins that you have deposited for other coins according to the price of the index and then the price that you traded at. And that can happen at a much faster speed. So once your coins are in there, they can be traded really, really quickly. But of course, you have to wait for them to actually arrive. Right. And from an architectural perspective, you just mentioned that at least some of the backend is built in C++. Is that through a framework? Is it a hand-rolled framework? Or how did you uh, kind of come to deciding on what to use there? Well, framework, I mean, what would you call STL a framework? I guess it's just part of the standard C++ language. Okay. Um, Not really a whole lot of large libraries used for it. A lot of it is sort of low-level algorithms. Thinking about things like uh, lock-free rings, thinking about things like uh, not making too many copies, having things in cache, that kind of stuff is is what you need to think about if uh, things have to be very, very quick. We also have uh, a columnar database called KDB, which uh, deals with a lot of risk stuff, and that is blazingly fast as well. And outside of that, we have sort of standard web infrastructure, like web servers and authentication servers and load balancers and things like that. I think I'd read that a lot of the platform on the infrastructure side is in AWS. Is that right? That's right. That's right. It's um, just a simple choice for many startups, really. Yep. They, they offer so much stuff. So at some point, you end up thinking probably sensible for us to, to put on that rather than, say, getting rack space and putting a bunch of servers up and managing all that ourselves. Right. And you can scale it as you need it as well. Yeah. So it scales according to, uh, you know, how many people are using it easily. Although obviously we have 
like you know, all the team members are actually experienced with bare metal deployments. And out of curiosity, you know, Rust is a language that we've seen come up a lot in crypto and blockchain. Is that have you messed around in Rust at all? I've heard a lot about it. Yep. I haven't had the time yet to uh, mess around with it. I think it'd probably be very interesting, mainly from sort of a software engineering point of view, where if you have memory safety, then um, probably solves a lot of problems for you. Also, you know, it's it's always cool to play with new toys. <laughs> And you know, yeah, I can see why you think about Rust, especially if you're coming from C++. And obviously a lot of crypto projects are new projects, so I can see why a lot of people would say, hey, let's try with Rust. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely one to think about. And it's one of the things I keep an eye on space. So how many people are using Rust? How often does a Rust article appear in Hacker News? Yeah, and I guess if there's some kind of competitive advantage it would give you as well. So I think uh, both of us are familiar with some of the traditional trading applications out there. So for example, like I used, uh, I traded on Realtik and another white label platform our prime broker used. They're very fast systems, very effective to get trades in. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't say UX and UI were their strong suit. But looking at some of the front end on Interdex, it's really nice. It's clean design, great color schemes, you know, kind of app that a trader could use very easily. What were some of the kind of UX and UI design principles you guys went in thinking about? Oh, that's an interesting question, uh, especially for me, because uh, you know, I come from that traditional finance background where as long as it's on the screen somewhere, then uh, it's fine and it doesn't need to look pretty. Right. So the um, principle is, I guess it needs to be user-friendly. People need to be able to find the information they want quickly. They need to be able to customize the layout. We have that as well. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't. That's really nice. You can move the panels around and Whichever one you like to have biggest is, is up to you, and you can resize things. We also have TradeView uh, integrated because that's what everyone wants. It seems to be the standard for drawing all the lines and that kind of thing. The colors, I guess we just have a great design team that picked the right uh, sort of uh, visual uh, effects. We get a lot of compliments for it, actually. Yeah, I thought it looked really clean. Like a lot of the older, like Realtik, for example, it was it was like a white screen and there would be random flashes of red and green and you got used to it and you use it enough, you know what they mean. But someone who just, you know, modern day who really appreciates like nice, clean UI layouts, uh, it must it must look kind of uh, kind of crazy. But yeah, no, Interdex looks really nice. Um, did you guys go the route of like a, a more popular framework like React and Angular or what did you do there on the front end? Yeah, that standard framework, but with you know with a fair bit of customization and a lot of focus on making the thing look nice. Mm -hmm. I, I get the feeling that a lot of crypto enthusiasts like to trade when it's dark. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, like I, you know, although I did trade the Japan shift once, most of my trading days were during daylight hours, so I didn't really think too much about that. Yep. Uh, but even in my coding, I've turned everything into a dark theme. I love it. And that's how the UX looks as well. So I think in August, you guys launched a private testnet. Is that right? That's right. Okay. That's right. People are already uh, looking at the platform, giving us feedback. Uh, just people we know for now. Yep. That's great. Uh, pretty, soon, pretty soon, it's going to be public. Okay. And pretty soon after that, it's going to be production. Based on what you've mentioned, you know, you guys seem like you're very, very customer focused, especially in terms of what feedback you include in your next release. How do you figure out what 
feedback should get included versus, you know, save for later or just kind of like ignored entirely? How do you guys think about that? Well, this is an interesting problem, right? So uh, people say a lot of things and some things, customers especially, right? Some things they mean like are really important and some things are maybe less important. Just have to keep an eye on what they say and how often they say it and what they're saying in different places and who they're saying it to. But we have a deep roots in the crypto community. We know people who traded crypto for a long time. We're in various forums that need to be invited to get into. And people from there will, will tell us, uh, we think this, we think that. We definitely need this kind of instrument or, you know, the you definitely like the, the trade view thing. People are already asking that from a while back saying, hey, hey, can you make sure that you have trade view in your uh, UX? Mm-hmm. So it's just a question of keeping your ear to the community and, and just listening. Of course, then you have to then measure that against the engineering requirements to build whatever it is you're thinking of. Mm-hmm. But you know, with some experience, you can uh, do some prioritization and say, you know, these things are easy, these things are not so easy. And then from there. So that that's great. You guys are getting feedback and stuff. And then the next, I guess, public test net is left. And then after that, you guys will head to mainnet. Is that like a public mainnet or private mainnet? or uh, Prod, right? So, um, you know, real money. That's awesome. So a few more weeks and a few more weeks after that, and then uh, we should be uh, in the air. Awesome. So something we've been asking a lot of guests, uh, particularly to technologists, you know, there's a lot of concerns around technology, the surveillance state, data collection, security, and, and all these things. So trying to stick to the more optimistic side, outside of crypto and blockchain, what are some interesting technologies and trends that you were personally optimistic about? I used to do a lot of uh, quantitative stuff. So uh, there's this language called Julia, which uh, has come up a lot in discussions. Uh, it's now yet another one of those that I haven't really had much time to, to look into, but a lot of positive things are being said about it. and People are starting to crop up in my circles that are using it. So uh, that's another one of those that got to keep an eye on. Yeah, that one is it's directed uh, mostly toward the scientific and mathematic communities. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I'm not building as many quant models as I used to. um, There's not really that many in in the exchange. But of course, it's uh, something that I keep an eye on anyway. Yep. What are people using for doing big calculations? Awesome. Well, how can listeners find out more about Interdax? What would you like to let them know? Go on our website. There you'll find out more about us. We're going to be coming out soon. And it'll be an exchange that's built by uh, professionals who are into crypto and uh, we'll satisfy your needs. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks. Thanks.